Chapter Ten of Pellucidar. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. Pellucidar by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Ten: The Raid on the Cave Prison. His head was turned over his shoulder as I first saw him. He was looking back toward the village. As I leaped for him, his eyes fell upon me. Never in my life have I seen a more surprised mortal than this poor caveman. Before he could utter a single scream of warning or alarm, I had my fingers on his throat, and had dragged him behind the boulder where I proceeded to sit upon him, while I figured out what I had best do with him. He struggled a little at first, but finally lay still and so I released the pressure of my fingers at his windpipe, for which I imagine he was quite thankful. I know that I should have been. I hated to kill him in cold blood, but what else I was to do with him I could not see, for to turn him loose would have been merely to have the entire village aroused and down upon me in a moment. The fellow lay looking up at me with the surprise still deeply written on his countenance. At last, all of a sudden, a look of recognition entered his eyes. I have seen you before, he said. I saw you in the arena at the Mehars city of Futra, when the Thipdars dragged the Tarug from you and your mate. I never understood that. Afterward they put me in the arena with two warriors from Gombol. He smiled in recollection. It would have been the same had there been ten warriors from Gombol. I slew them, winning my freedom. Look! He half turned his left shoulder toward me, exhibiting the newly healed scar of the Mahar's branded mark. Then, he continued, as I was returning to my people, I met some of them fleeing. They told me that one called Huja, the sly one, had come and seized our village, putting our people into slavery. So I hurried hither to learn the truth, and sure enough, here I found Huja and his wicked men living in my village and my father's people but slaves among them. I was discovered and captured, but Huja did not kill me. I am the chief's son, and through me he hoped to win my father's warriors back to the village to help him in a great war he says that he will soon commence. Among his prisoners is Diane the Beautiful One, whose brother, Dakor the Strong One, chief of Amos, once saved my life when he came to Thuria to steal a mate. I helped him capture her, and we are good friends. So when I learned that Diane the Beautiful One was Huja's prisoner, I told him that I would not aid him if he harmed her. Recently one of Huja's warriors overheard me talking with another prisoner. We were planning to combine all the prisoners, seize weapons, and when most of Huja's warriors were away, slay the rest and retake our hilltop. Had we done so, we could have held it, for there are only two entrances, the narrow tunnel at one end and the steep path up the cliffs at the other. But when Huja heard what we had planned, he was very angry and ordered that I die. They bound me hand and foot and placed me in a cave until all the warriors should return to witness my death. But while they were away, I heard someone calling me in a muffled voice, which seemed to come from the wall of the cave. 
When I replied, the voice, which was a woman's, told me that she had overheard all that had passed between me and those who had brought me thither, and that she was Dacor's sister and would find a way to help me. Presently a little hole appeared in the wall at the point from which the voice had come. After a time I saw a woman's hand digging with a bit of stone. Dacor's sister made a hole in the wall between the cave where I lay bound and that in which she had been confined, and soon she was by my side and had cut my bonds. We talked then, and I offered to make the attempt to take her away and back to the land of Sari, where she told me she would be able to learn the whereabouts of her mate. Just now I was going to the other end of the island to see if a boat lay there, and if the way was clear for our escape. Most of the boats are always away now, for a great many of Hooja's men, and nearly all the slaves, are upon the island of trees, where Hooja is having many boats built to carry his warriors across the water to the mouth of the great river which he discovered while he was returning from Futra, a vast river that empties into the sea there. The speaker pointed toward the northeast. It is wide and smooth and slow-running almost to the land of Sari, he added. And where is Diane the Beautiful One now? I asked. I had released my prisoner as soon as I found that he was Hooja's enemy, and now the pair of us were squatting beside the boulder while he told his story. She returned to the cave where she had been imprisoned, he replied, and is awaiting me there. There is no danger that Hooja will come while you are away. Hooja is upon the island of trees, he replied. Can you direct me to the cave so that I can find it alone, I asked. He said he could, and in the strange yet explicit fashion of the Pellucidarians, he explained minutely how I might reach the cave where he had been imprisoned, and through the hole in its wall reached Diane. I thought it best for but one of us to return, since two could accomplish but little more than one, and would double the risk of discovery. In the meantime he could make his way to the sea and guard the boat, which I told him lay there at the foot of the cliff. I told him to await us at the cliff-top, and if Diane came alone to do his best to get away with her and take her to Sari, as I thought it quite possible that in case of detection and pursuit it might be necessary for me to hold off Hooja's people, while Diane made her way alone to where my new friend was to await her. I impressed upon him the fact that he might have to resort to trickery, or even to force to get Diane to leave me but I made him a promise that he would sacrifice everything, even his life, in an attempt to rescue Dacor's sister. Then we parted, he to take up his position where he could watch the boat and await Diane, I to crawl cautiously on toward the caves. I had no difficulty in following the directions given me by Juag, the name by which Dacor's friend said he was called, there was the leaning tree, my first point he told me to look for after rounding the boulder where we had met. After that I crawled to the balanced rock, a huge boulder resting upon a tiny base no larger than the palm of your hand. From here I had my first view of the village of caves. A low bluff ran diagonally across one end of the mesa, and in the face of this bluff were the mouths of many caves. Zigzag trails led up to them, 
and narrow ledges scooped from the face of the soft rock connected those upon the same level. The cave in which Juog had been confined was at the extreme end of the cliff nearest me. By taking advantage of the bluff itself, I could approach within a few feet of the aperture without being visible from any other cave. There were few people about at the time. Most of these were congregated at the foot of the far end of the bluff, where they were so engrossed in excited conversation that I felt but little fear of detection. However, I exercised the greatest care in approaching the cliff. After watching for a while, until I caught an instant when every head was turned away from me, I darted rabbit-like into the cave. Like many of the man-made caves of Pellucidar, this one consisted of three chambers, one behind another, and all unlit except for what sunlight filtered in through the external opening. The result was gradually increasing darkness as one passed into each succeeding chamber. In the last of the three I could just distinguish objects, and that was all. As I was groping around the walls for the hole that should lead into the cave where Diane was imprisoned, I heard a man's voice quite close to me. The speaker had evidently but just entered, for he spoke in a loud tone, demanding the whereabouts of one whom he had come in search of. "'Where are you, woman?' he cried. "'Hoja has sent for you.' and then a woman's voice answered him. "'And what does Hooja want of me?' The voice was Diane's. I groped in the direction of the sounds, feeling for the hole. "'He wishes you brought to the island of trees,' replied the man, "'for he is ready to take you as his mate.' "'I will not go,' said Diane. "'I will die first. "'I am sent to bring you, and bring you I shall.' I could hear him crossing the cave toward her. Frantically I clawed the wall of the cave in which I was in, in an effort to find the elusive aperture that would lead me to Diane's side. I heard the sound of a scuffle in the next cave. Then my fingers sank into loose rock and earth in the side of the cave. In an instant I realized why I had been unable to find the opening while I had been lightly feeling the surface of the walls. Diane had blocked up the hole she had made, lest it arouse suspicion and lead to an early discovery of Juog's escape. Plunging my weight against the crumbling mass, I sent it crashing into the adjoining cavern. With it came I, David, Emperor of Pellucidar. I doubt if any other potentate in a world's history ever made a more undignified entrance. I landed head first on all fours, but I came quickly and was on my feet before the man in the dark guessed what had happened. He saw me, though, when I arose, and sensing that no friend came thus precipitately, turned to meet me even as I charged him. I had my stone knife in my hand, and he had his. In the darkness of the cave there was little opportunity for a display of science, though even at that I venture to say that we fought in a pretty duel. Before I came to Pellucidar I do not recall that I ever had seen a stone knife, and I am sure that I never fought with a knife of any description, but now I do not have to take my hat off to any of them when it comes to wielding that primitive yet wicked weapon. I could just see Diane in the darkness, but I knew that she could not see my features or recognize me, and I enjoyed in anticipation, even while I was fighting for her life and mine, her dear joy when she should discover that it was I who was her deliverer. 
My opponent was large, but he also was active and no mean knife-man. He caught me once fairly in the shoulder. I carry the scar yet, and shall carry it to the grave. And then he did a foolish thing, for as I leaped back to gain a second in which to calm the shock of the wound, he rushed after me and tried to clinch. He rather neglected his knife for the moment in his greater desire to get his hands on me. Seeing the opening, I swung my left fist fairly to the point of his jaw. Down he went. Before ever he could scramble up again, I was on him and had buried my knife in his heart. Then I stood up, and there was Diane facing me and peering at me through the dense gloom. "'You are not Jog,' she exclaimed. "'Who are you?' I took a step toward her, my arms outstretched. "'It is I, Diane,' I said. "'It is David.' At the sound of my voice she gave a little cry in which tears were mingled, a pathetic little cry that told me all without words how far hope had gone from her. And then she ran forward and threw herself in my arms. I covered her perfect lips and her beautiful face with kisses, and stroked her thick black hair, and told her again and again what she already knew, what she had known for years, that I loved her better than all else which two worlds had to offer. We couldn't devote much time, though, to the happiness of love-making, for we were in the midst of enemies who might discover us at any moment. I drew her into the adjoining cave. Thence we made our way to the mouth of the cave that had given me entrance to the cliff. Here I reconnoitered for a moment, and seeing the coast clear, ran swiftly forth with Diane at my side. We dodged around the cliff end, then paused for an instant, listening. No sound reached our ears to indicate that any had seen us, and we moved cautiously onward along the way by which I had come. As we went, Diane told me that her captors had informed her how close I had come in search of her, even to the land of awful shadow, and how one of Hooja's men who knew me had discovered me asleep and robbed me of all my possessions, and then how Hooja had sent four others to find me and take me prisoner. But these men, she said, had not yet returned, or at least she had not heard of their return. Nor will you ever, I responded, for they have gone to that place whence none ever returns. I then related my adventure with these four. We had come almost to the cliff edge where Juog should be awaiting us, when we saw two men walking rapidly toward the same spot from another direction. They did not see us, nor did they see Juog, whom I now discovered hiding behind a low bush close to the verge of the precipice which drops into the sea at this point. As quickly as possible, without exposing ourselves too much to the enemy, we hastened forward that we might reach Juog as quickly as they. But they noticed him first and immediately charged him, for one of them had been his guard, and they had both been sent to search for him, his escape having been discovered between the time he left the cave and the time when I reached it. Evidently they had wasted precious moments looking for him in other portions of the mesa. When I saw that the two of them were rushing him, I called out to attract their attention to the fact that they had more than a single man to cope with. They paused at the sound of my voice and looked about. When they discovered Diane and me, they exchanged a few words, and one of them continued toward Juog, while the other turned upon us. As he came nearer, I saw that he carried in his hand one of my six-shooters, but he was holding it by the barrel, evidently mistaking it for some sort of war-club or tomahawk. 
I could scarce refrain a grin when I thought of the wasted possibilities that deadly revolver in the hands of an untutored warrior of the Stone Age. Had he but reversed it and pulled the trigger, he might still be alive. Maybe he is, for all I know, since I did not kill him then. When he was about twenty feet from me, I flung my javelin with a quick movement that I had learned from Gok. He ducked to avoid it, and instead of receiving it in his heart, for which it was intended, he got it on the side of the head. Down he went, all in a heap. Then I glanced toward Juog. He was having a most exciting time. The fellow pitted against Juog was a veritable giant. He was hacking and hewing away at the poor slave with a villainous-looking knife that might have been designed for butchering mastodons. Step by step he was forcing Juog back toward the edge of the cliff with a fiendish cunning that permitted his adversary no chance to sidestep the terrible consequences of retreating in this direction. I saw quickly that in another moment Juog must deliberately hurl himself to death over the precipice or be pushed over by his foeman. And as I saw Juog's predicament, I saw, too, in the same instant, a way to relieve him. Leaping quickly to the side of the fellow I had just felled, I snatched up my fallen revolver. It was a desperate chance to take, and I realized it in the instant that I threw the gun up from my hip and pulled the trigger. There was no time to aim. Juog was upon the very brink of the chasm. His relentless foe was pushing him hard, beating at him furiously with a heavy knife. And then the revolver spoke, loud and sharp. The giant threw his hands above his head, whirled about like a huge top, and lunged forward over the precipice. And Juog? He cast a single affrighted glance in my direction. Never before, of course, had he heard the report of a firearm. And with a howl of dismay he too turned and plunged head foremost from sight. Horror-struck, I hastened to the brink of the abyss, just in time to see two splashes upon the surface of the little cove below. For an instant I stood there watching with Diane at my side. Then, to my utter amazement, I saw Juog rise to the surface and swim strongly toward the boat. The fellow had dived that incredible distance and come up unharmed. I called to him to await us below, assuring him that he need have no fear of my weapon, since it would harm only my enemies. He shook his head and muttered something which I could not hear at so great a distance, but when I pushed him he promised to wait for us. At the same instant Diane caught my arm and pointed toward the village. My shot had brought a crowd of natives on the run toward us. The fellow whom I had stunned with my javelin had regained consciousness and scrambled to his feet. He was now racing as fast as he could go back toward his people. It looked mighty dark for Diane and me, with that ghastly descent between us and even the beginnings of liberty, and a horde of savage enemies advancing at a rapid run. There was but one hope. That was to get Diane started for the bottom without delay. I took her in my arms just for an instant. I felt somehow that it might be for the last time. For the life of me I couldn't see how both of us could escape. I asked her if she could make the descent alone if she were not afraid. She smiled up at me bravely and shrugged her shoulders. She afraid? So beautiful is she that I am always having difficulty in remembering that she is a primitive, half-savage cave girl of the Stone Age, and often find myself mentally limiting her capacities to those of the effete and over-civilized beauties of the outer crust. And you? she asked as she swung over the edge of the cliff. 
"'I shall follow you after I take a shot or two at our friends,' I replied. "'I just want to give them a taste of this new medicine "'which is going to cure Pellucidar of all its ills. "'That will stop them long enough for me to join you. "'Now hurry, and tell Juog to be ready to shove off the moment I reach the boat, "'or the instant that it becomes apparent that I cannot reach it. "'You, Diane, must return to Sari if anything happens to me.' that you may devote your life to carrying out with Perry the hopes and plans for Pellucidar that are so dear to my heart. Promise me, dear. She hated to promise to desert me, nor would she, only shaking her head and making no move to descend. The tribesmen were nearing us. Juog was shouting up to us from below. It was evident that he realized from my actions that I was attempting to persuade Diane to descend, and that grave danger threatened us from above. Dive! he cried. Dive! I looked at Diane and then down at the abyss below us. The cove appeared no larger than a saucer. How Juog ever had hit it, I could not guess. Dive! cried Juog. It is the only way. There is no time to climb down. End of chapter 10